Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Hello and welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast, your liberal speakeasy. That's Justin Trudeau you just heard there. What a great guy. Um, so, how, I hope you've been well. I've been reasonably well. I've It's been a tough week, you know. It, it's been a tough week. We've had Brexit on, on the one hand, the, the, um, the debate in the House. Um, we've had fantastic speeches from the likes of Nick Clegg and Ken Clark, Stella Creasy, etc., etc., We've had some pretty narrow-minded um, cause uh, arguments as well uh, uh, from from the other side of of the hills, uh, and you know we know who they are, so we're not going to waste time on that. But there's also uh, Trump's been it's been pretty brutal as well, and obviously we've had people the, the judges blocking his um, amendments. <laughs> I don't know what the hell you'd call what he's doing over there, but blocking blocking his immigration policies and, and, and vile tactics. So yeah, we have, it's been a pretty hard week, but I've got a really good interview here for you with Alistair Carmichael. It's a very, um, it's a cool, it's like a cool overview of his life into politics and, and what he what he does. And then also um, it gets gets quite intense, gets quite emotional, him talking about his, um, his journey with Amnesty International uh, into the United States to deal with the abolition of the death penalty and he tells a very intense story um, about his work there and, and it was very yeah it made it made me really emotional I know he, he choked up and it was all um but listening back to the interview today and yesterday editing it and pulling the whole thing together I hadn't listened to it for three weeks uh, so I'd more or less forgotten about the whole tone of it so I think you'll be really interested uh, and I'm really really happy to bring it to you but yeah, just just a really a, a, a quick one. There there is a event happening at the Talbot Pub in uh, near near Brockley, it's sort of Brockley really, Lewisham area in London. Now I know, I know that that is a London thing. I know it's very specific, but I know there are quite a few of you in London that listen to this podcast. Um, and if you are, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you've got um, liberal events that you want me to give a shout out to, please, by all means, email the show and I will give you a shout out. The email address is as follows. The Limehouse podcast at gmail.com. Now, this event I'm talking about at the Talbot Pub in Brockley, it's on the 9th of February. It's at seven o'clock. It's a sort of go have a pint, talk liberal um Talk, talk liberal things uh, and air your views uh, everyone everyone's welcome here I mean you know when you go out for a couple of pints with your friend and after a couple of pints you start you know thinking you're boring the socks off people talking about Brexit and Donald Trump well this is where you go and you will not get told off for ranting everyone wants to hear your opinion so go along to that it's a, it's a good it's going to be a great night Feel free to give us a review on iTunes. Uh, that would be really helpful. Uh, we're on SoundCloud, of course, and we're on Twitter, Limehouse Pod. I've been enjoying the back and forth uh, chit chat on Twitter. It's been it's, it's been great, especially around the uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of last week with the um, 
debate in the House of Commons about Brexit. That was really entertaining and kind of scary and alarming all at the same time. But isn't that just life, eh, everybody? So here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, and I will see you on the other side. Take care. So you're you're from you're from, oh, you're obviously from Scotland, <laughs> yeah. but I'm I'm a, I'm a massive fan of the West Coast. Right. Okay. And you're you come from I, I, I come from the West Coast. I yeah. come from Iowa, but I now live in Orkney. My family home is in Orkney. I represent Orkney and Shetland. Yeah. Uh, so right to the top, the the north of Scotland. Um, and very different communities. Yeah. You know, everybody down in London seems to think that because you take uh, a piece of land and s- surround it by sea, that it, uh, all islands are the same. But yeah. in fact, Orkney and Shetland are very different. Um, they're Nordic, not Celtic, yeah. right at the start. Um, but also, they've had different influences, they, they run in different ways. Uh, and of course, they have a very distinguished history of returning liberal and liberal democratic MPs. That is true. So, how often do you get up? Because I mean, my I have a massive passion with the Isle of Mull yeah. and Iona. In fact, okay. um, well, it's not a question of going up; it's when I come down. Yeah. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you're, you're how, how So I look. My normal week works on. Uh, it's not a week; it's a fortnight. Yeah. What I tend to do is I leave Orkney on a Monday morning. I will be down to London by lunchtime. I will do whatever the business is, and it's never the same two weeks running. Yeah. Um, and then I will aim to get away on Thursday. Yeah. So I will be, say, in Shetland on Thursday night, yeah. all day Friday, Saturday morning, Saturday lunchtime, whatever the flights are. are um, I head back to Orkney uh, yeah. and have the rest of the weekend there with my family and then start the whole thing again on Monday Yeah. and do the Monday to Thursday slot in the House of Commons and Thursday night, Friday morning, I will then be back in Orkney for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you're quite tired, right? Uh, yeah, it tends to work like that, but you know, yeah. any fool with a map can see Shetland, Orkney and London and know there's going to be a lot of travelling involved, so yeah. um, it's just part of uh, what you've got with. In fact, I have to say, um, I think it, it gives me the best of both worlds. Yeah. You know, four days a week, I'm in London, I'm in the House of Commons, I'm right at the beating heart of the nation's uh, political life. Yeah. And uh, then for the rest of the time, I'm home in a community where I feel very much at home, where it's the sort of community that I was brought up in. Great place to bring up kids. You yeah. know, my, my kids have had the same sort of education in uh, local schools in Orkney that I had in Isla. Uh, my wife is a vet and uh, is, you know, very much an important part of a local community. How long, how long has she been a vet for? Oh, she qualified in a, 19, a, 1987. A, yeah. a vet, not yeah. Yvette. Uh, not yeah. Yvette, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. This is not Ed Balls you're talking to. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a veterinary surgeon. Okay, and, there we go, yeah, yeah. Um, has been since I see in 1987, my parents, because it's very much a team effort if you're if you're in hill farming. Yeah. Uh, my parents are proper mud in their boots hill farmers. They yeah. have a small number of cattle now. They used to have a lot more, uh, but cattle are a lot more work and it's a lot more physical. Uh, and a significant number of sheep, and that was uh, where I was. That was where I was born and brought up. So is that is that in your bones then? Because whenever whenever I go back to the Isle of Mull. There's something about that crossing from Oban or, or Ban, I don't know which way to say it, to 
to uh, yeah. Craig Muir is just like it's a st- it's something comes over me and I don't know what it, what it is I know my parents just, yeah, just yeah look a, if you're asking me do I have uh, an emotional connection with Isla and with islands in general because of the upbringing I had eh, yeah too right uh, very much so and you know you, I find this wherever I go in the world I visited the Falkland Islands about 12-13 years ago and uh, I could immediately associate with the, the people there, although yeah. they were right at the other side of the world, yeah. because uh, you know they had much the same issues uh, as as we have in Orkney and in Shetland and I grew up with yeah. on Isla. Um, does it mean that farming is in my bones? No, to be honest, I don't think it does. No. Um, I think it's it's in many ways it's a vocation. Yeah. Um, and uh, you really have to want to do it if you're going to do it and do it well. And, uh, you know, it was painfully obvious from an early point yeah. in my life that this was not what I wanted to do. So was there, a, uh, was there like, friction between you no, and your dad No, absolutely not. My, my parents could never have been more helpful and more supportive in that regard. You yeah. Know, they, 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 uh, I, they would have loved it, I guess, if I had take it on the family farm um, but uh, you know there has never been a point to any of the different things I have done when I decided to go to university when I decided to drop out of university yeah. when I decided to make a, a career in, in hotels and, and catering when I decided to go back to university when I decided to uh, stand for parliament and right along the way they've been phenomenally supportive and, and yeah. I think they understand and I can associate with this as a parent that um, what is important at the end of the day is that whatever choice you make in life you're happy with it you're comfortable with it and you, you yeah. enjoy doing it and yeah. in that respect I've led a blessed life with with like you know the, the huge uh, insurgents mm-hmm. I mean insurgents sorry the rise and popularity of the SNP yeah. the, the landslide that they enjoyed mm-hmm. How do you feel like the, the basis of the union now? Where does it stand? But for me, when I, when yeah. the result came through, yeah. I was relieved, very yeah. relieved. But I can also understand people that want independence. And also now with, with Brexit on the cards. Mm-hmm. Well, where, where, does, uh, the, where does the unions stand? The United Kingdom uh, is still a constitution. It is in need of enormous root and branch reform. So, you know, um, we still need, although we have pushed out enormous amounts of power and responsibility to parliaments in Scotland and assemblies in uh, Wales and Northern Ireland, there's still a huge amount to be done, principally in England. You know, that's the unfinished piece of creating a federal United Kingdom, which I think is absolutely essential to the future constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom, so, a, a, a highly centralised model of government running everything from Whitehall yeah. is as bad for people in Birmingham, Manchester, Newcastle as it ever was for people in Belfast, Cardiff, or, or Edinburgh. So you're talking more on the lines of sort of like de- devolved power to cities. Uh, no, I mean, look, this is where the debate needs to happen in England. Yeah. We had this debate for decades in Scotland. We built a consensus that we wanted a Scottish Parliament. And uh, that was because we felt it was what was best for us as a nation of five million people. 
Um, I don't know whether it's devolution to cities or devolution to uh, regions of, of England mm -hmm. or whether, and I think this would be probably not a sensible option, but whether you want an English parliament. Um, that is the decision that people in England have to take for themselves. It's the debate in which they now have to engage. Yeah. What I think has happened with uh, the growth of, of the maturing of the Scottish Parliament uh, and the other devolved institutions is that it is no longer sensible or sustainable for people in England to look at the House of Commons as being a proxy for their English Parliament. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I think that we now need to see the House of Commons as the proper federal structure and that if we're going to um, have a sustainable United Kingdom for the future, then we need to strip the power for uh, English communities out from Whitehall and Westminster in the way that we've done for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So what drew you to um, the Liberal Democrats in particular, considering... The, you know, the Liberal Party, yeah, in fact, exactly, it was. Yeah, exactly, the SDP, um, was it? Or, I, was, uh, no, I joined the Argyle Liberal Association as yeah. a 14-year-old schoolboy on Isla in 1980. Uh, I was uh, attracted for a number of reasons. I mean, I was initially engaged by Ray Meehy, who was later the Liberal and Liberal Democrat MP for Argyll and Butte, and who was then the Liberal candidate for Argyll and Butte, um, and who, uh, you know, came across this kind of geeky 14-year-old schoolboy who was fascinated by politics and who wanted to talk about it all the time. <laughs> really? And, uh, you know, the, yeah. the re how did how did re-engage me? Because, you know, she was um, not always the easiest person. She didn't have always the easiest small talk for a, for a teenage boy. Um, but she treated me uh, exactly as she would treat everybody else. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to talk about politics, she would talk about politics. You know, she didn't sort of patronise me, she didn't talk down to me. Um, and if I said something that was rubbish, she would tell me it was rubbish. Oh, right, okay, yeah. And, you know, she made me think about the things that were important in politics, and uh, she took a very I think, you know, what I then understood to be a liberal approach to it, and yeah. it is about realising that when liberals philosophically talk about freedom of the individual, that only really becomes a meaningful freedom if you have a community structure around which you can enable people to exercise their freedom. Yeah. And that's why in modern liberalism, community and building the community from the, the grassroots upwards yeah. has been such an important part of what we have always stood for as a party. Yeah, no. And, you know, so I, I started thinking about that. I, you know, the further you are away from the centres of power, the more you see the inadequacies of uh, government and the exercise of power. And uh, certainly as a teenager, sort of going through my own formative political years, um, I could see the importance for the communities that I knew and I cared about 
and this remains the case to this day, um, in having a structure a structure of government and a attitude within government that would meet their needs as much as everybody else. Yeah, you know, on a massively broader scale. Yeah, I and, and you know the the the, 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 the challenge of politics today remains that you have government that will respect the way people choose to live and the communities in which they choose to live. And where do you think we are now as a gov- as, as, as say, the Tory government? How do you feel they're delivering on that? I, no, I mean, they're not at all. They, they, they preach localism, but they practice something that's completely you at to, odds with it. How, how do you feel, for example, about Theresa May's Fairer Society yesterday? Um, I thought it was utterly banal and meaningless, you know. Uh, and you judge politicians like Theresa May um, who have all the opportunities of the day because she's at the, the top of the tree uh, not by what they, they say but by what they do and what I see here is um, a, a government which is actually, if anything pulling more power in towards the centre is not trusting of communities is not empowering individuals yeah. um, and which is now increasingly become a nationalist government. The great irony is that we've got a nationalist government for Scotland in Edinburgh and a nationalist government in in Whitehall now in, in yeah. the Conservatives. Yeah. And you know, eh, one of the reasons why I will always be eh, suspicious about the case for Scottish independence is that I take the view that nationalism is the opposite, it's the antithesis yeah. of liberalism. Uh, because liberalism has in its heart a, a, an element of internationalism and it's about looking out and, a, you know, in the same way that you start with an individual that cooperates with others in their area to build a community and you, these communities then work with other similar communities and that's how you build nation states. Yeah. The nation state is not the last word for a liberal and nation states must be able to work with and, and cooperate with other nation states, yeah. which was why uh, engagement with, as part of the European Union and engagement in a whole range of, of international organisations, be it the United Nations, be it NATO, be it yeah. ILO, the IMO, it is kind of natural and instinctive for e- ELO, us. ELO, of course. ILO, International La- Labour Organisation, yeah. as opposed to ELO, which is the Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah, great, uh, great, great, great band. A great, um, yeah. certainly a classic of its day. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it's ILO, the, the International Maritime Organisation, you know, these yeah. are all bodies that, that exist at a supranational level yeah. and which shouldn't really be seen as any great threat but if your political counting unit is a nation state um, and the SNP see Scotland as their political counting unit and yeah. uh, Farage and the right of the Conservatives see Britain as a political counting unit and Trump now does the same thing in the States and yeah. Marine Le Pen in, in, in France, they're all iterations of, of the same political theme. Yeah. Um, and if you see uh, if you see the nation state as your only uh, counting unit, then inevitably mm. uh, you become inward looking. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, one of the uh, for some reason nationalists seem to feel threatened 
by any other identity than their national identity. Uh, I rejoice in the fact that I have got a multiplicity of uh, national identities and, and community identities. Yeah, you know, I'm very much a West Highlander. I'm very much an Islander. Uh, I'm, I'm proud to be Scottish. I, I love being uh, British and I, I love being European. Well, I suppose if, if you are to be if, if sort of fundamental about it, mm-hmm. if you do see yourself as a nationalist and that is it, that's all you're ever going to recognise, that's all mm-hmm. you ever want to be, then it's, yeah. you know, that's the path you choose. I was lucky in my, my household. Yeah. My sister went off to Nepal when she was young. I, I followed, my mum and dad yeah. followed her. We, you know, we brought it's one up, of the great ironies of modern life that as a consequence of economic globalisation, um, your national boundaries seem to mean less than ever before because people, goods, services, social interaction cross national boundaries with an ease far greater than we've ever known in our history. But for some reason, our national identity seems to matter more to an awful lot of people than ever before. Why is it so important, beyond anything else, to be to be English and to be so protective of that? Mm-hmm. And, you know... For some people it is. Yeah. For some people, they feel threatened by the idea that they have to share sovereignty. They see all the, the, the disadvantages of it and yeah. they don't value the advantages that come from it. Um, and I guess it's for those of us who feel differently to make the case to highlight the advantages that come, the opportunities that come from association with people in yeah. other parts of the world. Because, you know, there's a generational divide here, sadly. It's not universal, but um, young people people of my children's generation yeah. understand this much more easily because it's the world that they've been brought up in. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I've offered the, the example many times before that when I was a teenager, I had a pen pal in France and a pen pal in the, one of the South African homelands. And uh, having a pen pal at that point meant that you sat down every so often and you wrote a letter on this tissue-thin sort of writing <laughs> paper and you posted yeah. it off and a week later it would get there and a few weeks later something else would come back. You contrast that with the life experience of, of my children um, who have a, they've got Xboxes where they play games with people across the world. Yeah. Um, I was mildly alarmed to learn the extent to which both my teenage sons have mastered a fairly a ripe vocabulary in a whole range of different languages. As a result. That's another um, But you know, they've it, got it? they've got that gaming background, they've got Facebook, they've got Twitter, they've yeah. got FaceTime, they've got Skype. They've got email. If you want to communicate to somebody in another part of the world, you don't sit down and take it to write a letter. You take it to a letter box. It is instant. It's like but that. Alistair, I miss pen and paper. Yeah. I, I I went to I went to a boarding school. Um, sorry, I'll just put my silver spoon. <laughs> You'll notice when I came in here, I put my silver cutlery down on the mm. table and I took my gold medallion off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. Um, I miss writing letters. Yeah. I constantly. I know I'm going off topic here, but I really, I really enjoy it. 
Did that yeah, just, sure. Did that just beep? Or was it outside? I'm paranoid about that beeping. It still seems to be functioning. That's good. Um, in as much as I'm yeah, qualified as... to judge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just feel like that... Um, I suppose that's the... Yeah, well, little, but you know, that's... Part, but... And, uh, look, yeah, so you like writing letters. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I criticise nobody for writing letters. Yeah. And I... Because it's one of the big changes that I've seen in... in uh, the years I've been a member of Parliament, because I've been in Parliament since 2001, is I don't get many letters anymore. I get um, virtual bucket loads of emails, okay. quite a lot of which are all identical in terms because they've come from some sort of click activism exercise, and the engagement there is different as a consequence. So, just But that's the world that, that we now live in, and I, I'm not going to wind that back. Uh, Frankly, I wouldn't want to. No. I mean, do you feel that the um, the click activism that you just brushed on there, mm. I, my first experience with politics was um, marching against uh, the, uh, ju- the the illegal junta in Burma yeah. for Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah. We were out there physically, you know, not many yeah. of us, like 30 or 40, and then latterly uh, the, mm-hmm. um, the Iraq war. That was actual yeah. grassroots, you know. We still have... It did require a certain commitment to yeah. get out and to go and f- physically to join up with other people to yeah. do that. Um, and, you know, that that does not, though, I think, devalue the effort of those who uh, who, who take other routes and, yeah. who, who, you know, use the, um, the click activist route to, to, yeah. to make their point and to have their voice heard. Do you feel like there's a, a tendency for that just to be the easy option for people to look? Oh, Facebook. Well, it can sometimes be. Yes, you know, um, I you occasionally see a big world event happening, and then somebody will very sarcastically post a status saying, "Well, who would have thought that this was possible without a single Facebook status being posted?" Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, you know, we're we're uh, change has accelerated at a phenomenal pace. In, in my lifetime and certainly in the last 15, 20 years um, and at some point we will catch up with it yeah. and we will come to terms with it yeah. um, and we will learn how to treat the internet trolls we will come to terms with social media and uh, you know or we may just learn to live with it yeah. uh, for a next generation this may just be the, their new reality yeah. um, but we always have to sort of remind ourselves that we are living in a quite extraordinary time in history. Oh yeah, you don't have to remind and, me. <laughs> you know, it's the bottom line is change is still happening and it's yeah. not finished yet. No, no, precisely. Um, it just brought to my uh, attention Iraq War, Charlie Charles Kennedy. Yeah. Um, I have absolutely no idea how how much you worked together and to what level were you a friend or whatever, but. Could, have yeah. you, how, what's it, do you feel, for me personally, mm-hmm. um, do, you, do you feel like politics, we're missing him? Oh yeah, I mean, I think we definitely are. He had a phenomenal political talent. Um, and it, I mean, remember that Charles left university. He, I went to Glasgow University a year after he had left, so I know a lot of people who knew him, if you know what I mean. Yeah. He left university at 22. He was back in the House of Commons at 23 as a newly elected MP. 23? 23. So, you know, his was not a typical life story. 
but he had this real gift to be put in front of an audience or in front of a television camera and to talk about politics mm. in a way that would connect with people sitting at home watching it who would yeah. say he's a good guy he knows what my life is like he must you know he must have have experienced the same sort of things in point of fact his own life experience was was very very different yeah um so you know he had that tremendous uh, talent he was quite a complex personality i didn't you asked did i know him well i knew him well because i was a parliamentary colleague for quite a few years i knew him well because i have a lot of friends who were friends of his yeah and I, he was somebody who's in, in whose company i always felt very comfortable but I didn't really know him that well because he was quite a shy, yeah. quite reserved personality. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, he he did take uh, a lot more getting to know yeah. than I was able to do as somebody who came in as a new MP in two thousand one when he was already mm. leader of the party. Yeah. So um, I was quite interested to to learn that you work quite. Or have worked, or still working on yep. the uh, abolition abolition of the death penalty yeah. in around the world. Um, when did that come in? When did that start for you? Well, interestingly, it was not long after I was elected. Look, I mean, I've been a kind of a Amnesty International bleeding hearted liberal all my life, and you well, know, you these are been. I have been yes. Yeah. Okay. And these, you know, causes like the abolition of the death penalty. We should just say right now, anybody who uh, finds that offensive should uh, switch <laughs> off now because it's going to get gratuitous. It, it is going to get worse. Yeah. Um. And you know, and I had sort of instinctively been drawn to issues like that, um, because I then worked professionally as a solicitor. Uh, principally dealing with criminal court practice um, that again developed an issue in criminal justice and how it works and how what it actually means to be part of the criminal justice system. Yeah. And then in 2001 I was elected and I was uh, approached by Amnesty International local activists. So this is where your local activism and engagement does have some license to to to, uh, to, to teach you um, and they said Amnesty International are looking for an MP who cares about these things who would take on the parliamentary campaigning for a guy called Kenny Ritchie who was then on death row in Ohio and had been I think about 18 years and uh, it was a case where the criminal justice system had not handled it well and uh, you know I would always have taken the view that no matter how good a trial he had had um, you didn't kill somebody as a result of yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the conviction yeah. but it was a case where there was enormous doubt about his conviction and ultimately it was resolved um, by him entering a plea of no contest to some very, very minor charges and on the basis of that he was liberated. So it was a, that rare thing, a successful uh, death penalty yeah. campaign. Um, but that then took me on a bit of a journey and uh, literally and, and politically um, because of course as soon as Amnesty had got their hooks into me 
they said, right, well, look, we'll, we'll get you a ticket, we'll take you to Ohio and you can go on to death row and meet Kenny Ritchie. Ah, yeah, fine, okay, we'll put it in the diary. So uh, the day came, I turned up at Heathrow, I had my ticket and got on the plane and I'm reading the file going through, you know, going across the Atlantic. And because I'm a criminal court lawyer by background, a recent background at this point, I'm reading the file and I'm almost writing the jury speech <laughs> as I as I go across the Atlantic, saying, yeah. you know, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt. And uh, then I get to that part in the file where they say he, he didn't have a jury trial because his court-appointed attorney had selected to uh, have the trial heard by uh, a panel of three judges oh instead. So, you know, something for which you would probably be struck off in this country. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, that yeah. was the level of, of representation that he had. And then we went uh, with, I went with Kate Allen, who's still director of Amnesty UK, a local director uh, uh, from Amnesty Midwest and one of their field officers. And we went on to death row. And it was an absolutely mind-blowing experience. Um, you know, remember, first of all, this is America. America is the land of euphemism. Right, yeah. You know, you say, they will say, um, do you need to go to the restroom? You know, I don't need a rest, no, but I could do with going to the toilet. But they can't call a toilet a toilet. They've got to call it the restroom. <laughs> right. okay. um, contrast that with the fact that you get onto death row and there, on this heavy metal door, stenciled in sort of foot-high letters, is death row. It's not the post-capital conviction detention wing or something like that. It's yeah, just it's just death, death row. Yeah. And uh, Kate and I in particular were like sort of kids in a waxworks horror museum. And uh, there were just so many moments yeah. when the whole thing just blew our mind away. Yeah. Um, I mean, they brought Kenny Ritchie in to see us. We had an hour with him, and we also had a BBC film crew, so we only had half of, of the hour. Kate and I sat and we spoke to Kenny first of all, and he was in a pretty bad way at this point, and he was a gap, a tooth at the front of his mouth that he had filled with a piece of plastic teaspoon, sort of cut to size and shoved up between the two teeth so he didn't sort of uh, appear with a, a gap in his teeth. Yeah, yeah, wow. Okay. And they brought him in and they, uh, they, he is chained at the wrist to a chain around his waist. He has uh, cuffs around his ankles and his ankles are chained together. And then they take a padlock and they padlock him to this ring that is in the floor. So the, oh, the chain round his ankles is padlocked yeah. to this ring in the floor. So he cannot move. And even before that, the whole business of chaining somebody's hands to their sides just means that you can't even shake hands without moving right into their space. Yeah. You, know, it, it's, you, you shake hands with somebody normally, you both reach out a hand, and that's it. You've got yeah. this bit of space between them. You know, just to shake hands with him. It was the most inhumane and dehumanising process I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. And 
at the end of it, you know, we were literally mind-blown by this, but once you've stopped, uh, once you've come to terms with it, you then realise, wait a minute, we're here to do a job. So as the BBC, as Anita McVeigh um, interviewed Kenny Ritchie, Kate Allen and I are sitting at the back of the room passing notes to each other saying, you know, we've got to get pictures. This man is chained to the floor here. So I had my camera and rather than risk uh, any sort of difficulties getting the photographs, we decided that at the end of the interview, Kate would move in quickly, shift the table and I would take a picture of Kenny Ritchie chained to the floor and then if necessary we would argue the toss about what we did with the picture with the prison authorities. We were ready for a a bit of of a fight on that. Um, in fact, what happened was Kate moved in to pick up the table. Prison guard comes forward and he says, Hey, ma'am, no, you mustn't do that. And we think, already, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm a member of the British Parliament. You know, yeah, yeah. the Queen has sent me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you didn't say no, I didn't, that, did I didn't, you? I didn't oh. say that. <laughs> okay, yeah. um, and he says, No, you, you mustn't do that. Here, let me. <laughs> and he then shifts the table and says to Kenny, Look, Kenny, you've got to hold your hands up like that so they can see your chains. And he sort of shows, and sure enough, these photographs were taken home and we went in the Sunday papers and it, it, was quite, it caused quite a stir. Yeah. Now, the point I take from that is that, um, you know, those communities that use the death penalty just become dehumanised as a consequence. They don't see. That prison guard was not a bad person. He was just somebody who had worked in an environment that accepted that it was okay to kill somebody who had committed a criminal offence, even a pretty bad criminal offence as Kerry had been convicted of. And it had dehumanised him. Mm. He didn't see the the, the the harm in chaining somebody to the ground. Mm. And, uh, you know, the things that I saw on that trip then brought me back to Britain as somebody who had gone out as a a sort of fairly well-intentioned, bleeding-hearted liberal to an absolute um, campaigning zealot on the issue, you know. Uh, You will never persuade me that uh, in any way, shape or form um, it, there is a moral or even a sensible case yeah. for uh, the state to kill people uh, as a result of, of any conviction they've had. Yeah, of course. I mean, where, where mm. are you now in this uh, this field? Are you, are you um, still active? I'm still active. Yeah. Um, we have a very active group now in the House of Commons that I set up about eight, nine, ten years ago. What's it, what's it called? I, the All-Party Parliamentary Group for the Worldwide Abolition of the Death Penalty. Yeah. Um, and uh, I involve myself in cases from time to time mm-hmm. and uh, I work a lot with Reprieve, Clive Stafford Smith's organisation, yeah. who also do a lot of quite challenging human rights work uh, just today actually. Yeah. Um, I've worked with them recently on rendition yeah. and uh, you know today I had a question for Boris Johnson and uh, my question to him was, um, <laughs> given that Donald Trump now wants to reinstate the uh, American torture program, uh, can you 
promise me that we will not uh, share intelligence with them if it's going to be used in something that involves the use of torture. Yeah, yeah. What was it Trump saying? Waterboarding or something a hell of a oh, lot worse. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so, uh, and it's involvement in yeah. with reprieve that has sort of led me into uh, activism in, in that sort of area yeah. as well. And it's part of the privilege of being a member of parliament. You know, everybody can be part of a, a campaigning group like Amnesty International, mm. for example, or Reprieve, or any of the other organisations that are out there, Human Rights Watch, um, all, all you know, all these organisations. Um, but part of the privilege uh, as a member of Parliament is that you have the opportunity to engage and to campaign on these issues mm. and to give a voice which uh, would not be heard otherwise. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. Know? Um, and uh, it, it's absolutely mind-blowing sometimes. You know, the, the, the death penalty work in particular um, has been an emotional roller coaster. God, I bet. Um, one of the other trips I did with Amnesty was to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, to see a guy who was in death row there called uh, Troy Davis who was a, a remarkable individual, you know, again a case over which there had been enormous doubt and a, a just, a, you know, a really sharp, bright, totally wasted intelligence yeah. and a, an incredibly um, unbitter person, yeah. you know, who'd been really through the mill and um, you know, when when I came off death row having seen him, there were, one of the things he told us was that in, I think, 19, 20 years of incarceration and death row, he'd only ever once stepped on grass. And, uh, yeah, I still have uh, in my office at home a, a small laminated pouch of grass that I picked up outside the, uh, the, the, the death row. Uh, or the prison in in Georgia, because you know that one sort of detail. Were there any uh, standout moments then, like that really just made you stop? Well, I mean, the one of, one of the one of the most uh, thoroughly depressing uh, moments was the night that uh, Troy Davis was killed, mm. because Amnesty had organised a vigil in London. Again, I was there. Uh, along with other people, um, I've been on that particular visit with a guy called Richard Hughes, who was the drummer in Keen, you know, okay. band, my rock star mate, and uh, you know we were outside the American Embassy, and you know the word came eventually about three four in the morning that nothing was happening, and so I eventually walked home because I was sort of in such an emotional state by this point that I needed this time and space just to sort of think things through as I walked. So I walked home from uh, Grosvenor Square to Kennington, say home, to the flat rest of the in, in London, and uh, got to my bed, I don't know, about five o'clock in the morning, and then turning on the radio at seven o'clock in the morning, he had actually been executed then, you know, more or less while I was yeah. still walking home. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, yeah, if it's meaningful at all, if you care about people as individuals, yeah, you know, you're, you don't just, uh, you don't walk away from these moments. No, no, of course. 
Um, it's quite emo- obviously mm-hmm. quite emotional to talk about that. Uh, brings up a lot of, of memories. Mm-hmm. And the, the, invol- the involvement you have, I cannot. You know, I don't think a politician should be scared of emotion. Yeah. You know, um, and if you have an emotional reaction to something, people have emotional reactions all the time. Yeah. Um, you don't though. Just let the emotion rule everything. You know, if all you do in politics is emote about how awful something is, yeah. then frankly you're not going to achieve much unless you're prepared to be a bit more hard-headed about yeah. it. And, you know, I suppose to finish the political journey on the death penalty, yeah. um, one of the, the best things that uh, we were able to do on that front in coalition was Vince Cable put a stop to the export of pharmaceutical products mm. from this country that were being used on uh, on, on death row in, in American states. So, you know, that was something yeah. that you could do politically that made yeah. a real difference. Absolutely. Um, because we were, it wasn't just an emotional thing, it was part of, of being in government and it's part of what you could do by being in government. Yeah. Being in government was very difficult, it made an enormous number of difficult uh, choices and compromises, but at the same time because you did the difficult stuff, you were able to do some of the stuff that meant that on death penalty, um, I've been able to do a bit more than just emote. So yeah, thanks so much, Alistair Carmichael, for your amazing contribution to the Limehouse podcast. That was a really brilliant interview. I love, I love going in there uh, to Portcullis House to having a good old chat with him. It, it was, I was a bit, you know, um, uh, I don't know, intimidated by Portcullis House. I suppose I always am, really, considering how much work goes on there and the type of people that kind of work there. Pretty intense. Anyway. Um, what have we got coming up this week well it's not just this episode that you've just listened to or are currently listening to we've got interviews with mark pack three part series one two three i it was such a good chat with him that i've split it into three segments so they're coming out tuesday wednesday and thursday who is mark pack who is mark pack william well mark pack is um he's a blogger uh, and he's also built an amazing website that uh, focuses mainly on liberal democrat uh, issues and it's all very constructive information uh, he's quite new- neutral at times as well you know and and in this interview we, we talk about brexit we talk about um, donald trump we talk about the history of the liberal democrats and um, what happened in 2015 and what, uh, why, why it happened. And, and it was my chance to really sit down with him and, and um, talk, talk the stuff that really, you know, kind of like got me into, the, into politics, I suppose. Uh, and also the, the heartbreak of the 2015 result and why it happened and how the party can rebuild. And, and um, we talk about his book, 101 Ways to win an election which if you haven't already got uh, haven't got 20 minutes to describe it so i'll just do it in in 20 seconds or five it's brilliant it's a really it's really great if, if you're not necessarily into politics it's still a really good way of um looking looking at business structure and, and ideas and and how to um how to win i suppose you could yeah how to win clients how to win um uh, constituents over that kind of thing so it's, it's good fun it's a very small concise chapters as well so it's easy easy to read 
but yeah, and and looking further afield, we've got um, Jonathan Partley, but Jonathan Bartley from the Green Party. He's the co-leader along with Caroline Lucas. He and I went for a walk in Green Park in London and had a good uh, good chat. Uh, we talked music and politics and what is better. Um, maybe a, a pint of beer uh, on your own with a, with a copy of the NME, maybe. The NME, God almighty, that seems like decades ago now. The Strokes, the Libertines. Anyway, uh, who else? My goodness, Norman Lamb. Uh, that was a really good chat. I'll be bringing, bringing you that in a, probably uh, maybe a couple of weeks just to keep you interested. But yeah, so in, in the meantime, I suppose you could do us a favour and maybe leave a nice little review on iTunes where you can obviously find future podcasts. Um, yeah, obviously we rely quite heavily on your input and uh, it'll be great to hear um, hear from you. What, what you've got to say about the show, what you'd like on the show. Uh, you can you can also email us, the Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Limehouse Pod, and we're on Facebook and all that kind of jazz. And um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to know what you think. But in, in the meantime, look after yourself. Check out Mark Pack's uh, website at markpack.org.uk. Uh, enjoy the uh, three-part interviews coming up this week. Stay safe, look after your, look after each other, and um, don't do anything I wouldn't do. So maybe don't go and see Michael Bolton, although, you know, it's subjective. He might completely change your life forever, and um, if he does, good luck to you. But not in this house. There is no Bolton in this house. Maybe Quo, but no Bolton. <laughs>